And, and I tell patients and families, what's hard is you are used to asking hard questions and getting complicated, difficult answers. And the questions haven't changed. They're still hard. The answers have become overly simplistic. Well, how do you feel? Well, do you hurt? You have a hard time breathing? And that is such a hard transition for patients to take, to go from complicated answers to simple ones when the questions are still complicated. What are some of the most important things to understand about hospice nursing in the 21st century? Let's talk all about it with hospice nurse and podcaster James Dibbon right here in episode 462 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal and professional development, your career and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm always here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the Growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, my ubiquitous request is that you leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, or you can do that on Google, Amazon, or Spotify as well. And you can become a patron at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. As little as $2 a month helps a lot in terms of keeping things rolling here at the Nurse Keith Show. I appreciate you all so much, even if you're simply listening and or sharing the show with others that is awesome so thank you so much for being here in the nurse keith nation with us so like i said we're going to talk to james dibbon hospice nurse and podcaster the show notes will be over at nursekeith.com in the drop down menu or in the app where you happen to be listening and james it's always great having fellow podcasters on the show because you've got the awesome headphones the great mic and you're ready to roll and uh, the first question i have for you is what's one important thing for our fellow nurses to understand about the state of hospice these days? Wow, that is that is a good question. And mm. well, first off, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I've been listening to your show already. And when uh, you reached out and asked me to consider being a guest, I was very excited. Oh, yeah. So I definitely appreciate that. But um, so I've been in hospice for about nine years. And Definitely, I've seen some changes over these years in hospice, and uh, but but a lot of the challenges of what I'm seeing now is even even in a city like I am here in Kansas City area, and we probably have a hundred hospice providers, believe it or not, in just this uh, area, and it's just not that big of an area, all things considered. But um, hmm. I do notice that there is still. With, with the baby boomers coming in the way that they are, it is getting busy for everybody. And the staffing problems that exist across all of nursing, uh, we are not exempt from that. And since hospice care is end-of-life care and comes with the weight of that kind of work, the burnout rate for hospice nurses is exceptionally high. 
um, even compared to other areas of nursing. And so we have this influx of patients who are aging and developing, you know, progressing in their terminal diseases and we're short. And then the nurses who join the industry can easily burn out quick. And so it's just this perfect storm, if you will, that really is becoming a big challenge for hospices all over the U.S. Very good points for us to be aware of. And just to take a like a step back for a second, my my understanding, and I I was a hospice nurse back in the day, is that you know in the I guess it was the seventies or maybe even late sixties when the hospice movement started, it was kind of under the radar. It was very much sort of viewed as almost alternative care. It wasn't part of the mainstream. It was almost seen as a little like hippie-ish or something back in the day. Like it was, it was like being a lay midwife or something. And when I was doing hospice in the late 90s, people were talking at that time that things were starting to change, that the Medicare hospice benefit, I don't know when it exactly started, but what I understand and what people I see talking about is this sort of corporatization of hospice that it's been kind of swallowed by home health. So what what are the changes you perceive that have happened and are, are my perceptions relatively on on the money? I, I think they are. When I when I talk to nurses who have done hospice from the beginning of their career, nurses who have been in hospice for 25 plus years, uh, and and I, I don't know the exact dates, but I believe it was in the early 80s when Medicare went ahead and, and took over hospice. And before then, it was just very, it was all volunteer based. Mm-hmm. It was just purely volunteer and nurses went and did that work after hours. But regardless they they do talk about how corporations have moved a lot more into hospice that it was very much just local entities that have moved in and or were providing the care and a lot of it was nonprofit and and so it has changed over you know over the last 10 or 15 or maybe 20 years where a lot of the larger organizations are um you know are are I don't like to, I don't want to use the term taking over but mm-hmm. just getting more involved and getting in the game, getting yeah. in the game. And, and it's because it is an area of medicine that can still turn profit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so obviously yeah. these large organizations are just going to get involved. They are. And you said you've been a hospice nurse for nine years. So what was your very first encounter with hospice? Like, like when you took that first job nine years ago, what, what were your impressions and what was your initial experience? Like, how did it impact you? Well, I had been an LPN for a lot of years and had actually left nursing for a while and, and did some other things. And so when I decided to come back to, a nur- to nursing, I decided to bridge over and to become an RN. And for whatever reason, I decided to go straight into hospice care as an RN. So that's the only work I've ever done as an RN. But I, but I remember those, that first month specifically, because I thought, okay, I'm going to go into hospice and everybody who comes into hospice care, they've made amends. They have accepted the terminality of their illness 
and and it was very sunshine and rainbows even though mm. it's end of life care james still thought it was sunshine and rainbows he thought everybody was ready and it didn't take me long to learn and i almost feel silly for having thought of it the way i did but what did i know is that it it wasn't like that at all right and that excuse me what i have learned over the years is that I, in my, I guess I should say in my early years of hospice, I tried to really differentiate. I, wa I wanted to, and especially when I was an, an admit nurse, I wanted to say, okay, you know, I really wanted to discover, is this person ready to die or not? And so I oversimplified it and I've come to realize that it doesn't work that way. There's really 10%, 10% and 80. Mm -hmm. And so 10% of the people are like, I just want to hear about hospice. I have all these doctor's appointments and I'm fighting this thing. And then there's 10% who's like, I'm 107 years old and I've had a good life and I'm ready to go. Everybody else is in the middle. Mm -hmm. There's an 80% in the middle who's scared. And, and that, that was the hardest thing for me to really grasp and really understand is that that's why it's okay that you actually don't have to be a DNR to go into hospice care. That 10, 12 years ago, I don't know, however long it was, Medicare removed that requirement. And a lot of people think, well, wasn't that a really bad idea? And I'm thinking, well, no, because that allowed so many more people to begin to have this gift of hospice because now they didn't have to sign a DNR. They could, and now they have a whole team of people who can come around them and help them understand the terminality of their disease. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the biggest experience that I've had in this journey. So you touched on some of those misconceptions about what it is. And what I've always understood too, and I saw it firsthand and also have seen it with, you know, friends, loved ones, loved ones of people I know, that a lot of people go into hospice much later than they could. Like they could have that comfort and care and the expertise of hospice nurses for weeks or months, you know, and sometimes people graduate from hospice and, you know, go back to, you know, getting regular home health because they, they kind of got better a little bit and no longer had that sort of more terminal type of circumstance. But my understanding is that a lot of people go into hospice like in the final week or days and they they're missing out. Don't do you think that's true? It's it's very true. So I still even in the role I have now, I do a lot of admissions, a lot of informational visits. I never want to get away from that because I just love meeting families and educating about hospice. And so I've learned as part of that conversation when I'm meeting with somebody for the first time to say, I, I help them. I, I ask them, have you had an experience of hospice? And they'll usually, many times now, people will nod their head yes. And I will explain, well, you've probably had, your experience of hospice has been one of two things. Like we can really oversimplify it. You had a family member who came on hospice and died three or four days later. Or you had a family member or friend who came on hospice and died eight months later or a year later. And so your perception of hospice is going to be different based on those two experiences. And, and that's what I'm discovering. And, and there's some different disease types that tend to wait more towards the last minute, cancer being the main one. 
because there's just so much advancement in that area of medicine. And, and a lot of times folks, they go too long. They come to us at the very end. And, and it is, it's sad to us because we know they could have benefited from us months ago. And because I am of the belief that the most powerful tools that we can have in our pocket as hospice nurses are influence and trust. Because if we can develop those two things in our patients, they are more open to our ideas. They're more open to ways we can palliate their symptoms. And the shorter amount of time that people are on hospice care, the less we are able to develop develop our influence and trust with our patients. Mm. And so, and so it really affects the outcome of their care and their ability to trust us and believe in us. And it really affects. Uh, the level of comfort that we can bring them to so often. And, and it also perpetuates the wrong idea of hospice in the community. And it's nobody's fault, um, but it's just how things can turn out a lot in hospice. So influence and trust. I mean, that kind of spells what nursing is about to a large extent. And, you know, we do a lot of educating in nursing. Um, that's just part of what we do. And there's a lot of education to do in hospice of the patient themselves, right? But then we also have to and get to educate the family and the caregivers. And you mentioned earlier that that fear plays a big role. People are scared. And you mentioned that bell curve of 80% of people are in the middle of the bell curve, which makes a lot of sense. So... Are the fears around death itself? Are the fears around um, pain? You know, what do you find are the some of the really common fears once people are entering into a, a hospice or end of life journey? I, I think, I think, fe- I think there is some fear on death itself. I, I don't think that's as much as maybe people might think. I think the fear of pain, pain. Um, yeah, the fear of pain. And just just to quote uh, Barbara Carnes, who is kind of the a big voice in the world of hospice, is that death isn't painful. The disease process is, you know, so a lot of times people think that dying in and of itself is a painful experience. And it's not it, it, it not necessarily the, it, the disease process related to it could be painful, different cancers and things like that. Um but but definitely there's some fear there there's fear of not not be this so if i can if this could come off right um not knowing every little detail of what's happening with their body at the end mm. because we're such and we're in america and we have you know some of the greatest healthcare in the world and you know because we've got a test for everything and one of the most difficult things for hospice patients to give up is all of the testing. Even if they know in their mind that they're not going to do anything with the results. And we spend a large portion of our time going, yes, we understand you want to go get another CT or PET scan or whatever it is. What are you going to do with those results? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times their answer is no. And then we have to say, okay, well, then how do you feel? Mm-hmm. And, and I tell patients and families, what's hard is you are used to asking hard questions and getting 
complicated, difficult answers. And the questions haven't changed. They're still hard. The answers have become overly simplistic. Well, how do you feel? Well, do you hurt? Do you have a hard time breathing? And that is such a hard transition for patients to take, to go from complicated answers to simple ones when the questions are still complicated. That makes really, that really makes so much sense. And so a lot of this time you're, you're teaching people how to approach their own care because they're coming from a different model. And when, when I, as a nurse, and I'm just speaking sort of generically, when I, as a nurse decide that I'm, I'm interested in hospice, you know, what are some of the things I should understand if I'm coming from critical care, med surge, telemetry, you know, what should I know is going to be super, super different (laughs) when I sign up for a job as a hospice nurse? You are signing up to work medicine backwards. And that's the only way I know to describe it because um, everything we do is to the negative Mm -hmm. because now we have to prove to Medicare that somebody is on decline and headed towards an end of life experience. And it is, it can be very, very difficult to move from charting to the positive because the insurance company needs, you know, Mary Jo out of the hospital in three days. And so you better be fixing them to, uh, to, to really being able to focus that charting to say, oh my gosh, here's how bad it is. Oh, it's dramatic, right? I'm putting my hand over my head. Oh, mm-hmm. it's so bad. They're so sick. Oh, mm-hmm. and it's so hard to make that change and say, well, you know, last month they could walk okay with a walker and this month they have to be pushed around in a wheelchair. That's what your charting is like. Mm-hmm. And that is a hard change for hosp- for nurses to make. Uh, definitely. And, and then just... Hospice is just so psychosocial. You really have to dial into your inner social worker um, to really be a successful hospice nurse because you're not, there's a lot of things you're not going to fix. And that's really hard for nurses to get used to. That's really true. Yeah. When I first did hospice, it was in the home health setting, you know, going from house to house. And um, I did hospice case management and it was really interesting and fascinating. And it was a pretty easy transition from home health to hospice. I just kind of switched from one side of the equation to other. And, mm. you know, it was pretty seamless for me. And then I also had a stint working in a, a hospice home, which was really cool. It was really different. We had four bedrooms. It was a house, actually. We had four bedrooms. We had a living room and a kitchen and a dining room. And families came and went at all hours of day and night and you know we would have a fire in the fireplace and we actually cooked you know we the nurses and staff cooked meals and served them to patients and it was very interesting model so james i was curious have you ever worked in an inpatient hospice setting of any kind so i have not um the the very first hospice that I worked for did have an inpatient unit. And so I would transfer patients from out in the field into the week here in Kansas City, they're kind of known as hospice houses. Mm -hmm. And so 
uh, and they're big and fancy. The ones that, you know, the people have decided to lose lots of money creating. Um, but yeah, so, so I've never actually worked full-time in there, but I've spent a lot of time in them and had some exposure to them. Yeah, I see. So I have one more question for you before we take a quick break. Um, you mentioned to me in previous conversations that training of hospice nurses on the job, there's there's been some challenges with that these days. Could you characterize what that's about? Yeah, I I think it's, and, and I don't know if it's like this in a lot of areas of nursing, because I've been out of the hospital forever. I'm yeah. trying to keep it that way. <laughs> I like yeah, I hear you. <laughs> um, but in my experience in the world of hospice is that there's just a lot of boring videos that don't really, they don't really help out that much. They don't teach you enough and they're bring videos, right? Where you're just clicking next as fast as you possibly can so that you can mark it off the list and get out of orientation. And so, and because of the shortage and the high amount of patients that hospices have and the turnover, just it's just this perfect storm where a lot of agencies, if you get a week in orientation before they hand you a tablet and push you out into the field to start taking care of dying people, is it is a thing. And, and I, I don't want to disparage every agency out there because there are agencies who are putting a lot more time and effort into that. Um, but it can get rough into some certain areas of the country where the time is just not there mm -hmm. uh, to really, and, and plus, I mean, there's no area of nursing anyway that you can, that there's a long enough orientation anyhow, right? Like let's calm down for a minute and realize that every area of nursing has a limited amount of time and resources to have you train for every possible scenario. Um, so, but, but hospice nursing, again, I feel can be just so backwards and so different. And it is so psychosocial heavy because we are escorting people through the biggest, I don't know what you call it, challenge the most life-altering experience. It is an end-of-life experience. Mm -hmm. And everybody is going to do it differently. And you're going to have so much to deal with. And there's so many moving parts that it is it is very complicated work. And so I, I would say there's not a lot of creative bring you along training and education for hospice nurses out there. There's just not a lot that I can find. And that is a segue for what we're going to talk about in the second half of the episode, which is the ways in which you, James Dibbon, help support nurses who are working in hospice or on the way into hospice. So when we come back from the break, that is what we're going to dig into is this great work you're doing in terms of your hospice community. So we'll be right back for the second half of this episode, number 462 of the Nurse Keith Show, with hospice nurse and podcaster, James Dibbon. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, James Dibbon, hospice nurse, and hospice podcaster. And James, right before the break, we were talking about, lo and behold, 
some lack of training that can happen in hospice when you decide you want to become a hospice nurse. And you also clarified that, let's face it, there's lack of training in most every form of nursing that you could possibly name, with some exceptions of some particular employers and places where you might get extensive training, like my new job, I'm doing travel medicine, not travel nursing, but actual travel medicine. And I'm getting extensively trained at my new job. But that is becoming more and more rare, let's say. So you decided there was something you needed to do in terms of providing support for nurses who work in hospice. So what was the catalyzing moment or thought or crystallizing experience that made you want to do that? So it can kind of be, I can kind of dig all the way back to the beginning of the podcast because I had, I was a part of a community on Facebook that had, I don't know, 12,000 hospice nurses floating around in it in various stages of their hospice experience. Some of them, it was over, but they're still in there giving advice or whatever. And I just heard a lot of burnout talk about nurses and they're burned out. They're having troubles in this, that, and the other. And so I decided, you know what? I am going to write a series of blog posts about how to avoid hospice burnout. And it was just, it was 11 articles that I did one a week for 11 weeks and published it at my website, confessionsofahospicenurse.net that had sat there for years, having done nothing on it, but it was just sitting there. And I published all of these and it got a ton of traffic. And I just covered different things like the importance of bedside charting, um, you know, planning your day and then working your plan, just a lot of time management, uh, making sure you have boundaries, not trying to be the hero in somebody else's story because us nurses, you know, especially me, I have a big hero complex and just want to be everybody's hero. Um, mm -hmm. And so when I finished that up, I had a lot of requests to start a podcast. And I'm like, okay, I've done podcasting before. It wasn't about nursing. And I thought, and I have 11 articles. I can do 11 episodes. I can at least do that. I'll convert these articles and reproduce them as podcast episodes. And I did that. And, and the response was overwhelming. And when that came to an end, or I shouldn't say an end, when that came to a beginning and it was getting popular, I was like, there needs to be more. I, there's got to be another step that I can take. And so I'm 42 episodes, 40, I can't even keep track, 40 some episodes into my podcast, but at about episode 18 or so, I decided to launch a support community specifically designed for hospice nurses. And I named it the hospice nursing community. And it's like a private community that for a very nominal fee, anybody can join who is either a who's a nurse who either wants to be a hospice nurse or is somewhat new to hospice nursing either way. And in that community, I just started creating group coaching sessions. And I, of course, I thought when I came up with the idea that, uh, that, you know, millions of nurses all over America was going to come live and watch James on his camera. And it didn't really work out that way. And it was a little challenging for me at first, but 
what I came to realize was that I was creating a library of content for hospice nurses out there. And it has just grown over the last year and a half or so. And I have 45 or so coaching videos on there that run an hour that just cover all the different areas of hospice nursing. And I think those are great videos. I've watched a bunch of them. I've listened to some of your podcast episodes. I think the last episode of your podcast I listened to was 46, which was re released just the first week of January of this year. Um, by the time this podcast comes out, you'll have more episodes out, obviously. Um, but I could see this as becoming something that hospice agencies use for their training since they don't necessarily have anything else to offer their new employees but that's another conversation so this community is great i've also poked around on there thank you for giving me access to kind of look around at you know the place where people can whine the people where people can share their successes you know people have shared you know their challenges on there so do you feel like the hospice nurses who've encountered you are you know kind of getting a leg up on some of these things that that could cause them great distress is it giving them a place where they can you know hone some yeah. of their skills and also just just share with other people who will understand what they're going through I, I i really do here to to start here just recently i completely changed up the price point that I have in there because I just felt like not enough nurses were getting the opportunity. I mean, times are hard right now out there for everybody. It doesn't matter what you do for a profession with economy and things being more expensive. And so I just, I just crushed it and just said, I've just got to get this in front of as many nurses out there as possible. And there has been a flood of members join here recently. And, and to kind of, provide them with some fresh content. I started a series on purely case management because most of the nurses that I get joining the community are brand new case managers. Mm -hmm. And they just had a wide variety of questions and areas of hospice nursing that they wanted more help with and felt like it was somewhat it was just the nuances of all of it. So I've put together, I think, seven coaching sessions that are about an hour long each of me just reviewing all of this content, the different the types of meetings that we have, the symptom management, managing your schedule, managing those visit frequencies. The biggest thing is the importance of bedside charting. People who listen to my show, and that's why none of my none of my local hospice nursing friends want to listen to it because they're tired of hearing me outside of the show tell them the importance of bedside charting and maintaining that work life balance. And and so the responses have been good in there for this series, and I'm already working on the next series where I'll focus on the admissions process and more of the bits and pieces of that just to provide that coaching, the voice of experience, so to speak, of how to help them. Uh, just what I, what I say is you take charge of your day. Don't let your day take charge of you. You know, you, mm -hmm. I tell, I tell my staff and I tell people on my show, you happen to your day, your day doesn't happen to you and the importance of intentionality. 
And so that's just a big focus inside the community. Those sound all really prudent and really important. And what is it about the bedside charting? Is it mostly about being able to go home at the end of the day and not staying up till 11.30 p.m. finishing your charting in your laptop or your uh, tablet? Yes, it very much is that because mm. hospice nursing, any type, any type of field nursing, right, whether it be a hospice or home health, comes with a lot of autonomy. Yes. And with that autonomy can come some pitfalls where, and, and let's face it, none of us went to nursing school so we could be really great on a tablet documenting our visits, right? That's not why we went to nursing school. So when you have all that autonomy and you don't have a supervisor and you don't, you know, you don't have to walk off the floor at 7 p.m. with all of your stuff done, it's real easy to kind of just not do it all day. Mm -hmm. And then you get home and whatever takes 10 minutes next to your patient takes 30 minutes at home because the kids are pulling on your, your, you know, your coat sleeve wanting attention or whatever, you know, cause you have another life, you know, you have home is your first job as my wife would tell me. Mm -hmm. And so you get home to your first job and you don't have, and so you're busy with all that and you get, and you sit down at 9 PM to chart from the day. And my big focus is trying to move nurses, all hospice nurses to the point where they can accomplish everything at the bedside. And it can be done because I didn't know any different when I started hospice. This is how I was trained from the very first day I walked in because I got started at a good agency. So I don't know what it's like to drag my charting into the evening. I've never done it. And mm -hmm. so I'm trying to find ways to empower nurses to do the same. And it's a learned behavior just like any other behavior we have in our lives that you, you can't be good at it until you start doing it. And you can't yeah. give up after one week. Yeah. And I remember the days when I first did home health and hospice um, and we were just learning to use laptops and we actually had to, um, we had these big, enormous, clunky, heavy laptops and we'd actually have to bring them back to the office, plug them into the wall and have them like upload and download data because there was no Wi-Fi. There was nothing like that. This was, you know, before the internet was really much of anything in terms of healthcare. And I also remember the good old days, I think it was the early 2000s when, you know, I would like stop at a cafe and I'd sit with my laptop and have lunch or coffee. And, you know, and those were the days when, you know, my schedule was such that it was actually pretty easy to do that. And I could sit in a cafe and chart a couple patients and then go on to my next patient. And that was lovely. And I think that's probably less possible for many people now who work out in the field because of productivity and things like that. But it sounds like when another thing that you say, an aphorism of yours, is that hospice nursing doesn't get easier. You just get better at it. Right. And the whole point of yeah. your community and your podcast is that people can work together to get better at it. So is that true? It doesn't get easier. You just become more efficient and more, just more well-versed in what you need to do to make sure you, you get it all done. I, I like to look at it that way because I don't want to imagine a time in my mind where I, where I go, well, now this is easy because it's, it's, 
because it's death and dying. Our patients are dying. Hmm. And I don't ever want to have this idea that now hospice is easier. I would rather see it as I'm getting better at it. I'm learning better how to communicate. I'm learning better how to manage my patient's symptoms. I'm learning how to be better with my time management because the challenges of hospice and dealing with the dying population is not going to change. They're always going to be scared of, of death or of being in pain and those things we talked about. They're always going to second guess their decision to elect hospice care and could we have done more or my mom can't communicate with me anymore because she has dementia. Am I doing the right thing? Is this what she would want me to do? None of that is going away. And by saying that hospice gets easier, we're saying that those kind of issues are going to go away or that we will somehow be able to ignore them. And so I just don't want to see it that way. And so like at the end of my show and places where I can slap that up, I'll put it and I'll just say, just don't forget Hospice nursing does not get easier. You just get better at it and let's get better at it together. And that's just kind of become my slogan for the hospice nursing community. And my desire is to help nurses get better at this work, not start to see it as something that's just becoming easy. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense. It does make sense. Another question for you. Um, For those of us, you know, 99 point whatever percent of listeners to this podcast are nurses. And for those of us who are out there in the world and we're not working in hospice, but we're talking to patients all the time, and maybe we work in oncology, maybe we work in cardiology, doesn't really matter where we are. When we encounter patients and or their families, and hospice has been broached by the doctor, the nurse practitioner, where maybe hospice hasn't been broached and it needs to be broached. Um, what can we do as members of the nursing and medical community to facilitate people understanding what it's about and being able to make informed decisions about whether they want to encourage their loved ones or if they're the patient themselves if they want to enter into hospice? So how do we provide the best education right now to those people we encounter? Yeah. So communication is one of my favorite parts of what I do for a living and what I love to, I think that's why I like doing the podcast. It's why I like still doing the one-on-ones with patients and caregivers and, and trying to help them understand hospice. And so I try to organize all my conversations in this manner. Listen, validate, and then communicate. I used to have the word educate in there. I used to put some other words and I I stripped it down to just say communicate. And I think it's always important for us to recognize, regardless of which side of healthcare we're on, whether we're on the curative side or the palliative side, is we should always be willing to listen to them fully so that they can express their fears and anxieties. We need to validate those and say, yeah, if I was in your spot, I would be scared too. And then, and then once people have heard, once they feel heard and validated, 
they will open up somewhat, you know, because you're building that influence and trust that I talk about. And they're going to be willing to sit and listen to you. And then, especially if you're somebody who's not done hospice before, at that point, the most powerful thing you can do is recognizing the fear and anxiety they have and then encouraging them to just have conversations. Mm -hmm. Conversations are free. Mm -hmm. Conversations don't come, or at least they should not come with pressure. Mm -hmm. And don't be afraid of this palliative team. And I remind all of my patients sometimes that every single one of us is marching towards the end of our lives. Just each one of us is marching there at a different speed and a different time. And we're all going to have to take this journey, each and every one of us. And it's okay to allow this team to come in and talk with you to help you fully understand what it is they can do and how they can help you. And probably the biggest fear everybody has is they think that we're there to kill them because mm -hmm. maybe they had a, an experience like we talked about earlier where they had a short, they had a short experience as they came on hospice, they gave them some morphine, they died. And they died. Years. Yeah. They died. So, you know, uh, I actually wrote an article called your, your hospice nurse isn't trying to kill you once and posted that on my blog. Um, I had a doctor tell me, my first medical director said, well, if we're trying to kill our patients, we're not very good at it. And so I, I, that's my best advice because you're not going to be able to answer every question on the other side, but the more you can listen and let people work through their emotions, they're going to find their, they're going to work their way towards the right answer on their own. Well said. Yeah. And so if people want some support or they want to learn more, they can go to confessionsofahospicenurse.net. They can get the hospice nursing podcast from there, or, and I'm sure they can find it on all the places where you find podcasts. And then the hospicenursingcommunity.com. And then you're on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, and the links will be in the show notes. But before we go, I have four quick questions I ask all my guests. Are you, are you down with that? Let's do it. Okay. So James Divin, how do you define success either personally and or professionally? Oh my, you know, mm. when I've listened to your show, I should have been ready for this, right? No kidding. It still wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> how do I define success? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I guess all I can say in my current role, I will define success as as many hospice nurses as I can help feel confident in this work and successful, then I'm going to feel successful. Like a great man once said, you can get everything you need if you'll help everybody else get what they need. Hmm. And that's my overall philosophy is the more people I can serve well then the natural result of that is that I will achieve the success I need. So it's really about serving other people. That's lovely, James. Um, okay. Next question. Could you name or describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They could be living or dead, famous, or someone from your personal life who you want to, who you'd like to name. So, you know, I'm going to have to name somebody personal to me. His name is Chuck Schroeder. He's not going to ever listen to this, mm -hmm. um, but he has been like my second dad 
Uh, and it's fun. I mean, he's he's 30 some years older than me and has just been a mentor to me most of my adult life and taught me a lot about business, taught me a lot about communication. There's a lot of him that I pour into every episode of my podcast that unless you've met him, you wouldn't know that that he is speaking through me in a lot of ways. So he's mm. still somehow with us. He's got cancer. And so he probably won't be with us a whole lot longer. He'll have his hospice journey soon, but, but it would be Chuck. That's nice. Thank you. Okay. Penultimate question. Is there a book or a movie? Doesn't have to be an absolute favorite. Just one that comes to mind that's had an impact on the way you think, the way you live your life, the way you approach your work, your relationships, your family, your marriage, anything at all? Um, well, leaving leaving aside my faith because it's too easy to go the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. There is there is a there is has been some really good books that I've read, but one of my favorites is called, just called The Speed of Trust. I think Stephen Covey wrote it, hmm. and it just talks about the importance of trust. In, in all of our relationships, but also professionally and how much quicker things will get accomplished the more you have trust. And I think that fits well into hospice, but it fits well into our profession. So I operate from a position of trust, even when I meet somebody for the first time. And I get burned on that sometimes at work or wherever, but I just decide if I get burned because I trust somebody, that's their fault and not mine. And so that that would be the speed of trust. Good book. Hmm. Yeah, I you know I'm aware of the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey, but speed of trust is new to me. So thanks for um, calling that one out for people. Okay, sure. last question: If you, James Dubin, were named King of the World tomorrow, what would be your first act as king to improve the lives of your subjects? It, I would, I would instantly make it so that all hospice nurses could chart at the bedside when they got home, all their work was done. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> you'd look good in a crown too. You really would. Thanks. You have, um, you'd look awesome in a gold crown. So you heard it here first, folks. If James becomes king, that's going to be his first act. You'd be a beneficent king for sure, James. Well, thank you so much for being here. People can go to confessionsofahospicenurse.net. They can check out the Hospice Nursing Podcast. They can go to the hospicenursingcommunity.com. And then we'll have links to all of that, plus your social media presence and your TikTok presence over in the show notes. And thanks for being here. This has been really wonderful. And thanks for thanks for waxing poetic about hospice. And thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Like I said, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com in the podcast drop-down menu. And you can also find all the links and everything I mentioned in the show notes in any app where you're listening. If you need personalized holistic career coaching, please look no further than nursekeithcoaching and nursekeith.com. Mention the show and get 10% off your first coaching package. And if you want to become a patron, even $2 a month would be awesome. 
head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith. We are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com and we are adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Helen Keller. The best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and the inimitable James Dibbon saying Rivaderci from Kansas City, Missouri. All right. Thank you, James. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll catch you, of course, on the proverbial flip side. Thank you.